What's up, Sharice? Hello. I hope this sounds better. I hope so, too. And I guess we have to kind of apologize to people. Over the last three weeks, we've been recording in Eugene's flat and haven't really given a lot of thought to the acoustics. And we finally realized that it could be better. So we've switched locations. We're still in his flat. We're in a different part of it. We have some blankets. We're in the Eugene us. dungeon. Yes. Sounds terrible. Yo, the work dungeon. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Macon, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash make. Let's get into it. If you look around, Sharice, I have two C-stands with blanket draped over them. Yes, and then behind Eugene is a burrito print. Blanket. A burrito blanket. It's kind of funny. Okay, it's it's kind of like we're both trying to take those like yo, this is photos. Like some, yo, and it's kind of like a, it feels very much like a basement podcast job. You know what I mean? Like someone starting a podcast in their basement. Kind of like someone starting a company in their garage. No, I get it. But, well, we're not starting, but at the same time, we've never upgraded our Correct. Recording. It's not like we have basically like, like since day one, we have not really upgraded anything equipment wise about this production. No, equipment wise, we have. You mean the mic? Trees, you're, we you're recording on a very expensive. I remember this is the mic that Michael Jackson recorded Thriller on. Although is it, it doesn't really? really matter. I don't honestly. Wait, is that a truth? Yeah. Uh, let me. That's such a weird random fact. But to that point, I don't think that our recorder, like our Zoom recorder, has enough amplification. So, I mean, that's another thing, too. You probably need better amps and stuff. I just meant I thought we started out using these mics anyway. That's what I meant by we didn't upgrade oh. it because we've just been using the same thing. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is we start from the top line. Yeah. You go first. I like I went first a couple okay, of times. Okay, fine. I'll go first. My topic this week is Airbnb launches Tyrus, a free digital toolkit from Airbnb design that helps freelance illustrators optimize their business so they have more time to focus on what they love. If you guys want to check out the actual guide itself, you can just go to tyrus.design. That's T-Y-R-U-S dot design. And that's where the microsite is at. It is a free guide from Airbnb that they put together to help freelance illustrators with their client and business management. Uh, in theory, this is to help them streamline and improve their process so they can focus on creating. And the whole resource was spearheaded by art director, illustrator, and Airbnb alum, Naomi Benson. But I think that beyond that, and this is something Airbnb says as well, is that Tyrus still has validity for freelancers in general. So I think that if you're in the realm of producing creative work, it's still 100% valid. And you can definitely apply some of the learnings from this. Yep. So the reason why this came about was that Airbnb, Airbnb recognized themselves uh, the power of illustration. And in some ways, Tyrus sounds like it was an internal tool turned external. So by virtue of improving their process, taking stock of how they do things, speaking to illustrators on how to improve the process, they developed this guide. Mm, that's a good way to and phrase it. 
I actually think that this happens a lot. Like even for us, there are things that you work on internally in terms of a process that you then share with everyone else. So it's kind of like you're battle testing something internally. And then once you are confident about it, you bring it to light with the rest of the world. This is a really simple example. But many years ago, like three or four years ago, when we first started out, we put together like a simple audio guide, recording a simple audio guide. Yeah. With um, to be able to send to other contributors or interviewees, subjects. And I've sent that to so many more people. Oh, really? Along, yeah. Yeah. I send that still. I exactly the same PDF. Yeah. It's, and it's like not not been updated. It's like four years old. Still yeah, good. yeah, that's really good. And that's something I did. On a side note, that's something I do find about audio is that there hasn't been that many updates because yeah. I think the process itself, in terms of recording, anyways. Yeah. And actually, just thinking about this right now, kind of similar to Airbnb and Tyrus, we made that PDF guide to send to like contributors specifically but in a way it did evolve into making classroom yeah yeah for sure well actually it's funny because making classroom is our somewhat equivalent of a tyrus yeah yeah it's our toolkit yeah so i actually before i go any further i want to talk about tyrus because yeah the name itself is derived or inspired by Tyrus Wong, an American Chinese immigrant born in 1910, who was a key pillar in the world of art, illustration, and design. Probably his most famous work was the brushwork for the movie Bambi, obviously okay, the yeah. Disney classic. And the way they've approached this guide is they've broken it down into four particular topics. And each topic has an introduction. And then from there, they break it up into several sort of subsections. So what you have is... Number one, nail the brief. Number two, champion originality. Number three, outwit deadlines. Number four, demystify feedback. So below the intros of each one, there's also a section called warm up. So it'll outline maybe the most important key points around this topic. Uh, deep dive, which is a case study. And then finally, templates, which are PDF tools for you to consolidate your ideas and thoughts so that you can basically run through this process. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually quite good. I, I was poking my head around and I thought it was really well done. I'm poking my head around yeah. actually as Eugene speaks. I also looked at this before and one, it looks so good. You haven't really mentioned this yet, but Tyrus itself, just the layout and typography and the illustrations in it look yeah. really good. Sorry if I'm like jumping. No, ahead. no, no. Not at but all. then also I completely agree. The way they've broken it down is a good educational framework. Yeah. So it's not just like a hundred links and they're just you know, a hundred random links, but there's actually this step-by-step like you're saying. And I think that's really well done. So there's also a section for FAQs. One thing I found interesting was why doesn't Tyrus address money or budgets? So this was their answer. Narrowing down Tyrus to just a few topics was a challenge. Our survey showed us how diverse the range of problems are for illustrators today. We decided to focus on topics where we had the most expertise that were broad enough to apply in most situations illustrators will encounter. One issue we didn't address was shrinking budgets, pricing your work, and being underpaid. These are very important issues, but difficult to address with one-size-fits-all solutions. We recognize that as a larger company with more access to resources, our perspective on fair pay and negotiating may be drastically different and often unrealistic for other clients or even different regions. If you're looking for guidance about budget, pricing, and payment, we suggest checking out this excellent resource by Shell Perkins on the topic. And there's a link. That's great. So I thought that was actually a very, very good answer. Yeah. Like, honestly, Airbnb being what will soon be a publicly listed company 
no real qualms with that, you know, and they can't really control it. Like their value for illustration is going to be different than a startup that is maybe like a restaurant, right? So the reason why I found this a topic worth speaking about is that this is increasingly more relevant in the world of remote working, but also just communication in general mm. right and for me i've like i've experienced this as well as like just doing client work through adam studios is that how you this is like a, a, a two-way dance and sometimes people enter these relationships with different levels of expertise and sometimes it comes down to understanding where you are in that relationship and knowing when to push and pull mm. right and what i mean is that if you sharice are a really talented illustrator and someone comes to you for work and they have never worked with a freelancer, sometimes it's helpful for you to guide them on that process. So, you know, I've worked with situations where it might be a big company, but because it's the regional office that has less experience, like the people inside the office have less experience with, let's say, licensing, right? You kind of have to walk them through the licensing process, right? And You're I, doing double job, really, as a yeah. lot of freelancers you are not just doing the work of an illustration, like the actual pen to paper part, but you're also doing what you're saying about educating the client about how to work with an illustrator. I've experienced that yeah. as well as in my freelance gigs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one thing is that I, when I first looked at this, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I, I was a little bit taken aback because it was like, oh, this is a guide for illustrators. But then in retrospect, I think it actually makes sense to just anchor it to one very specific thing. But knowing that whether you're an illustrator, a copywriter, I actually think that a lot of the lessons taught are applicable across the board. Sure. No, I agree. But it's very smart that Airbnb, I mean, in a way, you know, why would Airbnb do this? Part of it is marketing for Airbnb, right? By doing something like this, it increases their brand equity with illustrators, with independent creators. It showcases their own work. And Airbnb makes the smart decision of saying, you know, illustration in particular is really important for Airbnb versus like graphic design or copywriting. So they make a decision there. Yeah. And I think it's a really smart one because they get to work with really great illustrators to like put tires together. Yeah. It's very visually impactful. And then it's up to you as the independent creator encountering this toolkit to translate it for whatever you're doing. Yeah. And it's definitely translatable. Like, I don't think like, I would hope that someone who comes across Tyrus doesn't think, oh, I'm not an illustrator and therefore I'm not going to read it. Yeah. You know, that would be the, I guess, only concern. But I think freelancers spend a lot of time Googling, like, how to negotiate my quotation. Yeah. What is licensing? Stuff yeah. like that. So. Low key. Another reason I liked this was because I think Airbnb of all the large tech companies seems to be relatively well respected. They don't have the same baggage that a lot of other tech companies have. And I wonder if this resource is a representation of their values i don't know though i mean you said that they don't carry baggage but i am aware of airbnb baggage which is not necessarily about their company culture but is about the fact that because of the rise of airbnb then a lot of wealthy people with apartments but i don't save think that's, their apartments mm, to be that's not on them on right internal, but i feel like we have yeah. to say it anyway yeah. like there is there are issues surrounding airbnb where it leads to the gentrification of neighborhoods, where it results in weird housing markets where there's actually tons of empty flats, but they're reserved for tourists and Airbnb people as opposed to like actual local residents who want to live in those flats. So there are 
surrounding issues that are maybe not about how Airbnb itself conducts itself, but just that um, the impact they've had. Yes. Maybe incidental. I'm I'm okay acknowledging that. Like yeah. I mean, not I'm. It's not that I'm okay. Like I 100 acknowledge yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I I mean I see what you're saying. I think it, this kind of reminds me of WeTransfer. Yes. Because I think WeTransfer is not at, is WeTransfer as big as Airbnb. I mean, no. they're still a big tech company, not as big as Airbnb. Not as much of a household no, name. Yeah. They're kind of more niche, yeah. I guess. But they also do a lot of adjacent creative output that isn't necessarily directly related to their primary product, which is file transfer, like they do publication and media. What I like about this guy, too, is that the layout of information, as you mentioned, is quite clear, mm-hmm. right? It, they, in, in some ways, they're kind of like these mini lists in a way but they don't feel like like there's enough substance behind each point that it doesn't feel like it's like just as listicle right i also think picking illustration was a good choice because i feel like illustration does need a champion for why it's important and why it's valuable you know Mm -hmm. why it's worth paying money for because i think i mean i don't know do you think photography still suffers from like People not valuing it. Yeah, because everyone has like properly. I think yeah. illustration has more value to it than photography. Mm. I was gonna say I think like illustration. Sorry to cut you off, but yeah, illustration yeah, is probably the best middle ground because it's something you can visualize, so you can easily sort of maneuver and offer feedback. Yeah, but it's and it's also a lot easier than let's say copy and style and tone. Like I think that's really hard actually. Yeah, when you hit it, you like understand it, but getting to there can be very hard it's true and then photography itself i i think that it's it's sort of like overlapping but so many other things are applicable that just just angle yourself on illustration Mm. right well i was about to say i feel like people still have to make an argument for why a project should use illustration yeah as opposed to something else but after what you've just said i would agree that photography is even more undervalued yes i mean illustration for me is great because it can speak to the past when there was no actual documentation it can play with perspective it can be more abstract size yeah exactly it can visualize things that photography has a harder time visualizing yeah so that's about it for me i mean it's a pretty straightforward i I really want to use this opportunity to highlight the guide itself it wasn't really to debate anything i mean this comes up frequently with making members yeah. They come, neither Eugene nor I are freelance illustrators, and that's not really like our main profession. Like, that's, I wouldn't say that's our main expertise, but I've definitely fielded over the years quite a few inquiries about how to navigate freelance illustration projects and relationships with clients. And mine's always like, is mine's actually like the reverse. Like, so I'll give them my experience as a graphic and web designer and try to translate it to like what's ap- applicable for an illustrator. I'm glad that there's something like this out. And yeah. I'll send them like random links to different pricing guides as well. So it's nice to have that additional one from the FAQ. That's all for me. Should we move on? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on a second. I'm just gonna... Ooh, since we're shouting out this toolkit with emphasis, if you want to go look at it, it's tyrus.design, T Y R U S. Design. This week, my topic comes from Current, which is spelled 
the C-U-R-R-A-N-T, not current with an E. And Current is a publication and community challenging what we know and how we feel about food for the better. It is founded by Vicky Gu, who is a Macon Patreon member. And I've subscribed to her newsletter and I occasionally read some of the articles. This week, we didn't send out to Discord in advance. Eugene sent me a list of his picks. Wasn't really feeling any of them. No offense to Eugene. None taken. And I just wanted to check in on some different pubs that I follow. This one leaped out at me. So the essay in particular, it's this interview with Steven Satterfield, who is the founder of Whetstone Media. So it's kind of funny. It's I just told you about a new media publication. And then this interview was, is with another indie publication founder. So Steven Satterfield was interviewed by Sarah Cook for Current. Satterfield is the co-founder of Whetstone Media. He is a social entrepreneur who advocates for wine as a catalyst for economic development for Black and Indigenous wine workers in South Africa's Western Cape. Before that, he was a sommelier in fine restaurants. And the reason I picked this really is because he makes some really interesting points about the idea of origins. And this starts with him describing himself as an quotation marks, origin forager. What he wants people to understand about origin is this anthropological view of food, that as we study food, we can better understand humans and humanity. And that that is like a limitless worldview. Does he go into greater context as to why or how? Yes. I mean, I have my own theories, but I would love to hear it from an expert. I quoted quite extensively from this, so I'm just going to read from him. He says, I thought that origin foraging was super descriptive because what we try to get people to understand regarding origin is that we have an anthropological view of food, meaning that we study food as a means of better understanding humans and humanity. Once you bring audiences through that lens, I think it's really kind of a limitless worldview. Specifically, it's a worldview that allows for understanding. Understanding is important to us because we're trying to deepen empathy as a means of living. We think that understanding is a prerequisite for empathy, and we think that understanding more about human beings and the collective experience of human beings helps us be closer. Foraging for origin just means understanding where the things we eat come from as a way to better understand the experience of being human. And then later on, he claims, like he believes that fluency in language is something that we are all born with, that it's universal. And there's not much else that we are all already born with in terms of total understanding can you elaborate on fluency like a singular language as in we all eat essentially he mean that's my words that's not what he says he calls it fluency in food but essentially what i interpret this as meaning is like okay got it what and i interpret that as meaning you know fluency in something that we're all born with is that we all eat yes and as a as a basic fact of humanity i mean you could also say maybe the other universal fluencies have to do with seeing or smelling or hearing. But I think that I do believe that food is somehow more universal because our tongues and the taste is more similar, like across the board. Well, I you mean, there can, are nuances in culture, but like yeah. when we talk about hearing and we talk about language, that's very different Yeah, across the board. And also, like when we talk about spoken language. It's a primary need in the sense that you don't need to hear to live. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if that's exactly like a, a one-to-one argument, but it does speak to the importance of food. No, but you're totally right. Because like 
those senses of seeing and hearing and smelling, there are people who don't have those senses yeah. at birth, right? But if you can't eat, you your body, especially if we like take away advanced medical science, you know, where you could be hooked up to machines mm -hmm. that help you eat, then there's literally no way to survive if you can't get nourishment. And so that's, I think, the starting point, which is so basic to say, but it really makes sense that food from that perspective is this shared universal language. And Satterfield says that he thinks we don't take food seriously enough as something to study and something that is worth like anthropological consideration. Yeah. Which I also agree. Like, I think, I mean, you know, there are recipe reviews and restaurant reviews, and there's like a lot of rigor in this kind of world of dining. But yeah. I don't think there's not as much of that study as there is in other sciences, I guess, as to how food connects people. No, or I, like food I totally as understand. history. Because it's simultaneously deep and shallow at the same time. Yeah. It can be shallow in the sense that I just eat it for sustenance, but it could also be very deep in representation of a lot of things. Like this is what I always say is that the interesting thing about food is that you don't really eliminate food from culture overnight, right? I could eliminate all your books and all your media, but I food is simultaneously, like I said, deep and shallow. Like shallow in the sense like you would just continue like if a hamburger suddenly becomes politicized for whatever reason or a hot dog, then like it's a lot harder for you to just remove that overnight. Yeah. Right. It's a symbol, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you eliminate. Like, for example, in Hong Kong, there's like fish balls as a representation, curry fish balls as a rep representation yeah. of some sort of uh, political agenda. Right. And beyond culture, which I think is really important, like there are those modern references how a food becomes a reference point for something else there's also just the fact of where food comes from you know that's really going into satterfield's argument that regardless of the connotations of the burger there are political elements related to where the meat comes from mm -hmm. where the wheat comes from and he talks about i mean i'm sure there's so much more detail that could be said about this but he talks about how different countries produce the food we eat right and then the way they produce and process and export that food exists under systems of oppression mm. oftentimes. And we don't really unpack what those systems are. And maybe we talk about how like, oh, farmers are underpaid and like our understanding, you know, in big cities is like, oh, we should buy fair trade or we should buy organic. But that's just like scraping the surface of the complexities of food production and those systems that they operate within. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like so much there that I feel like I also am just starting to be aware of. Like I told you this separately about a month ago, I reconnected with a high school friend. And that's also part of the reason I was interested in this article because my high school friend a couple of years ago found her way into it's kind of the same thing as Satterfield being really interested in how can we sustainably make food? What are the sort of depths of food production and how can it be better? And she founded this company called Forested Foods. And then in my conversations with her, I just felt like there's so much that I don't know. And yeah. she knows a ton about this like 
world that I never thought of. And yet I eat food every day. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, I had another thing from this interview that I think you would find interesting because this is a little bit of a departure from food specifically, but it is about origins because Satterfield really believes that people should try to understand the origins of anything, like not just food. And he makes an example of basketball. So he says, you can't be a subject matter expert on anything unless you understand the origin of the thing. So if you want to be an expert on, I don't know, the game of basketball and you just want to watch the NBA finals tonight, like, yeah, I totally get basketball. I would think I would be awesome. Of course, you would not be. You can't just go out and start doing the things that people on the court do. But furthermore, just because you can go out and do those things on the court, it doesn't automatically mean you understand the game. Who invented the game? Where was the first place it was played? What were the rules? How have they changed? Who was able to change the rules? Any subject where people try to present a point of view without a basis in origin is, to me, a grotesquely incomplete way to present anything. That's not to say it has to be exhaustive or comprehensive, but it has to be rooted in some analysis of history and origin, because the events of today don't make sense without that context. Yeah, that actually is very well put. Yeah. Maybe a little bit aggressive, but I think still very valid. I think it's a little aggressive. I get it in the context as well of the conversation he was having with the interviewer, Sarah Cook, because I didn't read the question, but the question is actually connected to free trade between the United yeah. States and Mexico. So, for example, like... So, it's, I, a, it's a serious topic. I, I think the basketball analogy doesn't fit because it's a game, right? It's like... It, but I do think that what he said has full bearing on free trade whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. Like I think the severity and like the, the, the seriousness necessitates that. Yeah. I, I don't know if you need to know that James Naismith invented basketball and had a peach hoop in Canada or whatever to, you know, being a, someone who appreciates the game. Yeah. Right. I had that or same no. experience while I was reading this interview because I was reading the NBA metaphor and I was like, I don't know, because I think you can play basketball without knowing all of this stuff. You can definitely be a six-year-old who just like, goes onto a court and dribbles a ball. Mm -hmm. But I totally take his point on these deeper subjects in terms of you in encountering systems that are so entrenched in different geographic locations. It would be completely foolish for you and me, for example, to try to step into like this question about like Mexican small farmers and say yeah. that we have like a solution to that problem. And, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to anchor too much on this, but it's also that that world of negotiation is so fluid, but basketball has written rules and the players don't always have the ability to change the rules. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. course, every season they have like, you know, a players union meeting or whatever, but that's the extent of it. So I, 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 I've, yeah, I feel like I'm spending too much time on that one point. No, but it's fine. I do think that it's true. It's that I've found history to be far more interesting now. And I wish that maybe when I was younger, you know, when you're going to school, you're like, man, it's so boring. But like, if you were able to contextualize why it's important, I think it would significantly change the course. Like, I think I found stuff like dinosaurs far more interesting because there was a lineage to where we are today. Yeah. But that same lineage wasn't as clear, right? When someone's like, oh, this dinosaur led to a bird. I can yeah. see that, right? But 
it's hard to see like something that happened in the 1800s, an industrial revolution or whatever. It's where we are today. I think that that's an interesting way of looking at education. Yeah, that is a really interesting way. I actually was someone who was really into history when I was in school. But I think the reason I was into history was it was just interesting stories to me, sort of detached from anything. Just like, oh, I'm learning about people who did things that I don't do. And they lived like these really weird, different lives. Like, to be honest, like, I think that was my interest. But I think it would have been way more useful in life. Had I learned history in connection to the way the world works now. I mean, it, it really comes down to that fundamental marketing goal of like answering the why, right? Like yeah. we say it so many times, but I think a lot of people just lose sight of how important and impactful it is to be able to tell someone this is why you should care about it. Yeah. Right. Sarah, the interviewer, asked this really great question. It's more of a statement, like a conversational response that I'm going to read. She says, in what you're saying about origin, I'm hearing so much about the opportunity to understand what is happening in our world today. It's the opportunity to be able to trace those lines and to see the conversations, to suddenly see the frameworks appear in front of you and make sense, especially now during a pandemic, when here in the United States, we have a government that is suppressing reality. I think ignoring origin perpetuates this idea that reality only exists in the present, as opposed to what it really is, which is something that has been historically structured and created happening now in part because of all those things. And this will come out post-election, but I think a lot this past week about US the way- elections. Sorry yeah. about, yes. Um, we're recording this before November 3rd. By the time this comes out, it'll be after. But definitely been spending a lot of this last week, and I think if maybe it's been true for you too in your experience of media, thinking about how voting and elections work. And we- forget that all of the ways that those systems work have this complete history to them that they didn't just appear overnight that different people made specific decisions related to elections for specific reasons i've been using a very apt analogy or or comparison of that in recent times well it's it's more like you look at the current state of the United States, and it could be any country, right? There was some critical decision made at somewhere down the line. And for me, it was like Reaganomics and like whatever, 70s, 80s, right? Where you basically gave corporations far more power and they were on the pursuit of profitability above everything else, right? So it started offshoring everything. And in many ways, that's why there's a reduction in jobs in certain parts of America. And it's easy to scapegoat like, oh, this country stole all our jobs, right? When in reality, it was like American corporations doing what was provided as an opportunity to them. And yeah. now you're here. So that's like an example, yeah, right? Yeah, that is it. it doesn't have to be elections related at all. It's all over the place, right? Yeah. This interview, I think that is the bigger picture conversation that I'm interested in, which is not just about food, but just this idea of looking back at origin and finding out how did we get here you know and i think maybe the reason why when you're a kid history is not as interesting is because you're not questioning how what the reality is like what you don't have a full enough grasp yeah. even of like your present day to question how we got here or at least i'm like speaking for myself as a teen yeah but now now that i look at all of the sort of issues around us there's no way that they just materialized in the last four years, you know? Yeah. There, there's been you know, decades 
hundreds of years even. And how the more complex up. the thing, the more difficult it is to unwind or change the direction. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for me. There's still a lot of interesting stuff in this interview. So yeah, if you guys want to find out more, it's current, C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And the website is staycurrent.com. How will you look at food differently now based off of this? Even ever since I talked to my high school friend, I've been thinking about whether I can make adjustments in my grocery shopping, what kind of produce I buy and from where. And I can't say I've landed on anything solid. I do try to go to the wet market as much as possible, even though I don't have a full understanding of where the food in the wet market comes from. Okay. But I feel like the wet market is a more sustainable system than the supermarket. Mm. Maybe just by like precedence, yeah. it having existed first. And then I also actually- Wet market I, is basically a farmer's market. Yeah. You should probably, well, we, we talked about we it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The wet market in Hong Kong is where you get fresh produce. Yeah. You get, it's not necessarily like live animals or whatever. No, 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 no. Yeah. The, I mean, I'm, I buy a lot of veg and I'm just talking about like buying veg from this like a fresh, like a grocery stand, essentially. Yeah. Like from a, like a farmer's market. Where I know the like woman or man who runs that stall, as opposed to like the supermarket where it's like packaged in plastic. That's true. There is a lot less packaging. So I'm trying to do that, but I'm saying this even while I recognize I have no idea where those vegetables come from. Mm. And I'm trying to, for things like spices and my friend's company produces honey, I'm actually trying to buy more expensive. And it's not like expensive definitely equals better in terms of the system. But that is a kind of easy way, I think, yeah. to investigate. There must be a reason why. I mean, hopefully it's not just branding, but there must be a reason why in the process this winds up being more expensive. Yep. I've always been interested in that as well but maybe more from a societal and sociological point of view but i do think like origins and like fair trade are starting to become more important because if you are in a position where you can support people they're doing it a different way and or like paying people a living wage along the way and your ability to support them also is a signal to the market that hey people want this you know, as a social entrepreneur, maybe there's more investment that goes into it, mm. right? Economies of scale, things like economies of scale, like that $10 jar of cinnamon, I'm making this up, might be $5, might be the same as like, you know, or a little bit more than what you get at a grocery store down the line, but it's far better for their local ecosystem mm -hmm. landscape. I'm about to say something that I don't know if it's true. I feel more hopeful about food systems changing than fashion systems i'm trying to figure out why i feel that way and i think it might be because you make a food choice every day mm -hmm. and i guess that feels like it would pile up much more quickly because we're constantly making a choice and dining and grocery shopping versus fashion where those purchases might be more spread out all right hot take maybe it's because people in fashion are so vain that they don't really care as much like if you're still yeah. going to be involved in fashion like tomorrow onwards it's true maybe there's a sense of vanity there that matters a, lot, a little bit less that is also because you're, you're consuming it for a certain reason right that is also a very good reason as to why i feel more hopeful about food because i feel like 
at least what I've been reading or coming in into connection with is seeing people who really seem to be making a difference or really trying to push the differences. I think that's a good place to wrap up for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.